His first challenge is to, in my view, articulate a positive vision for the country that Nigerians can identify with. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. On March 1st, Bola Tinubu was declared the winner of Nigeria's sharply contested presidential election. The result came as something of a surprise because an insurgent third-party candidate, Peter Obi, was leading in the polls ahead of the election. But in a three-way race, Tinubu received 37% of the votes, enough to win him the presidency. Bolo Tinubu is from the same party as the outgoing president, Muhammadu Buhari, the All Progressives Congress, the APC. The election results are being challenged in court by his rivals, but if the results stand, Tinubu will be inaugurated in May. Joining me to discuss the results of this election and the key challenges ahead for the incoming Nigerian government is Amaka Anku, head of the Africa practice at the Eurasia Group. I caught up with her from Abuja one day after Tinubu was declared the winner. Today's episode is supported in part by the Carnegie Corporation of New York, and it is part of a series of episodes featuring African expertise on peace and security issues in Africa. Now here is my conversation with Amaka Anku of the Eurasia Group. Well, before we get into like the substance of our chat today, could you just let me know what's the mood in Abuja right now a few days after the election and just a day after it was called for Bola Tanubu? I would say relief because it was a long wait and it was dramatic. I mean, I've been here, if you're watching TV, there were some political parties were shouting at the head of the Electoral Commission and they walked out of the collation center. And at some point they tried to stop the collation and they said, you know, that the collation shouldn't continue until their concerns were addressed. So there was a lot of drama. A lot of people are relieved it's over, but a lot of people are also very disappointed. So relief, but also some tension, 
today we've seen both of the losing candidates address the public and indicate that they will be contesting the election results in court. The intention is to assure the supporters, at least one of them made this explicitly clear, that they don't need to go on the streets to protest because they will be addressing their grievances in the courts through the legal process. And I think that helps. And is there confidence among the two losing candidates and their supporters that the court system will be like fair and judicious in weighing their concerns? So actually, one of the candidates, the losing candidates, Peter Obi in particular, was asked this precise question. So at least I don't have to speculate what he thinks. He answered this question and he said he had full confidence. And ironically, you know, very long time ago in 2003, when Nigerian elections were a lot less transparent and a lot less credible, he was arguably, I would say, manipulated out of a state election that he won. And the courts reinstated him and he won that mandate back and he became the governor. And so he cited that example to say, look, I've done this before. I've won through the courts and we can do it again. So the sense is that he did appear confident in the court system. So Bola Tinubu was announced as the winner of the election. Somewhat a surprise, polling suggested that Peter Obi might be the front runner ahead of the election, but as we all know, polling can sometimes be unreliable. Nevertheless, Bola Tinubu was announced as the winner. And before we discuss his biography a little bit, I also noticed that turnout for this election seemed to be exceptionally low. What did that suggest to you about Nigerian politics today? I just want to say a word of caution about turnout. Unfortunately, Nigeria has a big problem with data. And so the total number of registered voters and the total number of people who have permanent voters cards is very likely inflated. There is no system in place to identify and purge the voter register of people who may have died since they were registered for elections in 2015. There's been attempts to do it, but there's no systematic way for them to do it. And so very likely there are several million people on the voter register, maybe even more, that shouldn't be there anymore, that are just duplicates and extraneous. To be very clear, I think 25 million people voting in Nigeria, that is low. That is low. But it might not be as low as 29% if you had the right denominator. So just something to keep in mind. What does that say about Nigerian politics? Look, the options for many people, the options in this election was not particularly attractive. None of the three main options were particularly attractive for a lot of people. Bola Ahmed Tinubu, who's the ruling party's candidate, is somebody who's been in politics for decades. He's old. And a lot of people see him as having a lot of health problems. He doesn't look good, just in terms of his physical appearance. The main opposition People's Democratic Party is also a 70-year-old guy who's been running for the presidency since 1993, Also an old guy, also seen as an old part of the political establishment and didn't excite young people. Peter B, who is younger, I think he's 61. He's not that young either, but younger. And 
also has been in politics, but a little bit less than the others. He's been in politics since the early 2000s versus the others had been in politics since the 1990s. Was seen as a relative outsider and different, a relative breath of fresh air. But he also, for a lot of people, didn't present a concrete policy alternative. He presented a hope and he ran on, we can do something different. But for a lot of people, he fell short on policy substance. So that left a lot of people with three very poor options. And people, some people chose to stay home. So I'd love to have you briefly sketch the biography of Bola Tanubu. The Western media seems to frequently refer to him in shorthand as something of a kingmaker. How did he get that reputation? And what is his background in politics? So he caught his teeth in politics fighting against military rule in the early 1990s. And so he was part of you know, the pro-democracy movements. And then he became the first democratic governor of Lagos, so the leader of one of Nigeria's 36 states, the former political capital, now the commercial capital. And in Lagos, he ran on a opposition political party to the party that was then in power, which was the People's Democratic Party, PDP, in 1999. And he proceeded to win for his party basically almost all of the states in his region, in the Southwest region, which was quite a political feat then because the federal government has a lot more power, has a lot more resources, and somehow he managed to beat them and won a lot of those states for his party. That was kind of the beginning of this sense of Bula Amatinibu as a kingmaker. And then since he left Lagos State's governorship after eight years, he's managed to maintain a certain level of control over the states for 20 years through all the different governors that they've had, three different governors now. And so that's why people could refer to him as a kingmaker. And he is taking office at a really crucial time in Nigeria. There are just a compounding number of challenges facing him as he takes office. How would you describe what some of those challenges are and how would you rank the challenges he faces in terms of like what would be most urgent? I think the very first challenge has to do with the election itself. Because there was a competitive three-horse race, this is the first time that you have a president winning without an, a majority of the vote, which would have been the case regardless of who won because of the nature of the votes. But he's won with about 35 37% of the vote. More people voted against him than voted for him. Absolutely. I mean, this is part of why he won, right? So, you know, the structure of the race favored him because Nigerians could vote 60% against him and he would still win because they were split in the vote, because the opposition was split in that vote. So his first challenge is to, in my view, articulate a positive vision for the country that Nigerians can identify with and can buy into, and that can become the basis of collaboration for mutual benefits across political lines or business leaders and society. And that's something that Nigerian leaders have often failed to do. 
Okay, so that's sort of more of an intangible thing. Now, the, the most important concrete thing he has to, in my view, is raise revenue. I think that Nigeria's biggest challenge is very, very little revenues to do anything. And most of the things that Nigeria needs to do, which mostly is about improving delivery of public services, assuring personal safety, creating a competitive economy, which means you have to build infrastructure and you have to invest in education, you have to invest in healthcare, productivity. None of that you can do without money, right? You need to have money, finances to do that. And so I think his next big challenge would be to raise revenue. On the raising revenue question, I have also seen commentary suggesting that he will be faced with this decision to eliminate a fuel subsidy that's been in place for quite some time. How do you think he will approach that particular decision? I mean, it's one of those things where I've been covering from afar, you know, politics and the developing world. And whenever a government eliminates a fuel subsidy, there are mass street protests. So he's going to have to like confront this thorny question sometime soon, I take it. I think he will do it. I think he needs to do it quickly. And I believe from what I've heard from him and his team, that they understand the challenges that will come with it. But I actually don't think it will be that challenging. The president before the last one, Jonathan Goodluck, he tried to remove subsidies in 2012 and there were protests and he had to retract. I actually don't think we we would see that kind of protest in Nigeria today. I think the political environment in Nigeria is very different from a lot of maybe other places now that would have protests. One is, first of all, protesting in Nigeria and most parts of the world is a middle-class phenomenon. Middle-class organized protests. You can have other people join, but it's often a middle-class thing. Middle-class sustained protests. If you don't have middle-class participating in a protest, it's often not a protest, it's a riot, right? If it's not middle-class, it's a riot. And middle-class don't like riots. I say that to say, if you just have rioting, it's very easily squashed. Rioting, looting, whatever, that's easy to squash. You squash it, it's done. And they take the police out, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Protesting is, is harder to squash. And the reason I say, yo, we're probably not going to see as much backlash as people think is because Nigeria's middle class today, for the first time, is on board with removing the subsidies. There's a lot less opposition to subsidy removal in Nigeria today than there was even just five years ago. And I think one of the best ways to demonstrate that is the fact that the three major candidates, all three of them, consistently, repeatedly promised to remove subsidies on the campaign trail, right? So for a politician (laughs) to be campaigning on something that was supposed to be unpopular, you know how politicians work. That's not what they do, right? They don't campaign on things that are unpopular. They campaign on things that are popular. All of them deemed subsidy removal to be so popular that they were all campaigning on it. So a part of why it's popular today Not only is there greater awareness of the country's financial difficulties, because last year there was a big story about how in one one quarter, the federal government spent 100% of its revenue servicing its debt. There was that. That raised awareness about fiscal constraints. But there's also the fact that because there is a controlled price for petroleum in Nigeria, there are shortages because 
the marketers who are getting subsidized petroleum from the state oil company are effectively hoarding the petroleum and or smuggling it outside of the country so they can sell it at, at higher prices, okay? And so you end up with a shortage of petroleum inside Nigeria. And a lot of people are paying two or three times the official price to get petroleum, to avoid long lines. So if you're in the middle class and you're already paying two or three times the official price, you're just like, whatever, just take the subsidy out because it's clearly not benefiting me, right? <laughs> it's benefiting whoever is smuggling it out there. So if you foresee that the fuel subsidy will be removed, it seems another key opportunity for raising revenue is just getting better at taxing individual Nigerians. Are there prospects for that in the near future? And how might Tanubu approach that challenge? So I think that is definitely a medium-term challenge. So there are a couple of things you could do. So one of the things in Nigeria, a lot of people just don't pay taxes, right? Or a lot of people underpay taxes. Their tax techniques, for example, a lot of companies pay allowances. So your total compensation, your salary might be a small portion of it. And then you have different allowances and you get taxed on your on that small proportion that is your salary. You don't get taxed on all the other allowances and it's a way of evading taxes. That's just one example. And then there are you know, medium-sized companies that just don't pay taxes. One, you have to crack down on the evasion, you know, make sure that people are reporting, you know, paying salaries and like getting taxed on those salaries. Two is to improve the efficiency of the process. Recently, there's been some technology introduced so you can pay your taxes electronically because a lot of times what happens is that government has these agents who go out and collect taxes and then it doesn't quite get back to where it's supposed to go. And so if you have it streamlined through technology, centralized, it's easier to cut out those leakages. But then also Nigeria has also very low value added taxes, which, you know, VAT, the U.S. has sales tax instead. So they could re- increase the VAT right now is 7.5%, which is fairly low compared to Nigeria's peers. So they could increase that to 10%. So those would be some of the strategies. There are also tax waivers that some companies get, both domestic and foreign, that they don't need. And so they could streamline or remove some of those tax waivers. So raising revenue is one of the urgent key challenges for the incoming Nigerian government. On the security front, do you expect Tanubu and his government to approach security issues both in northern Nigeria and also banditry that is rampant in other parts of the country in any way that is like substantially or meaningfully different from the outgoing Buhari administration? Yes and no. Yes. All three of the candidates actually made pretty similar promises to resource the security services better and to hire more police officers. I think those things will help. But I think most importantly, probably what has been missing from the current administration has been just very strong engagement, right? The current administration has been fairly nonchalant, just in terms of being engaged in governance and day-to-day and following up on, you know, policy priorities and meetings and making sure people are doing what they're supposed to do. 
I think just being more engaged and pushing the generals to, you know, where are you at now? What are we doing? What's the strategy? Da, 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 update. I think that will help. I also think the communication bit I talked about. So one of the things that people underestimate how important it's been in driving conflicts, especially in Nigeria, is just the lack of communication from government. And so because the government is not communicating and offering a positive vision for Nigeria, it's created a vacuum that has been filled by extremists and divisive narrative. And those divisive narratives cause tension that then break out into clashes between different communities. And that becomes a vicious cycle. And I think that the Tinubu administration, as would any of the other two, will do a better job of communicating and filling that vacuum, which would help to reduce tensions and help to reduce conflict. Going forward in the coming weeks or months, are there any key moments or inflection points that you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you both how Nigerian democracy is faring and also how the incoming administration is faring? So the inauguration, the new president gets sworn in on May 29th. And I think those first two months, June and July, will be critical. People will be looking to see him move very quickly on issues like removing the petroleum subsidy, on issues like liberalizing the foreign exchange regime. I think those are easy enough things for him to do. And then we can start to think about the more difficult things like how do you raise tax revenue? For me, I think the key things I'll be looking for would be, you know, what does he say on his inauguration day? What does he choose to focus on and prioritize? Does he hit the ground running with a competent cabinet, which he should have? He has almost three months, right, to come up with a cabinet. And I want to see him be able to hit the ground running in announcing the cabinet either before he's inaugurated or immediately after, right? This shouldn't take another several months once he gets in. So that will be a test of how quickly will he be able to move once he gets into office, is how quickly does he assemble a team? How quickly does he take on these difficult tasks? And then what is he saying and what is he proposing to be focusing on? Amaka, thank you so much for your time. This is timely and helpful. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts.